I am the program director at a nonprofit. I am often invited to speak at companies or conferences. More recently, these speaking gigs have started to offer honorariums. Do you have any advice as to whether we should allow our staff to receive honorariums or what pros and cons there are to consider? Sure would be great to receive some extra income on top of my salary, but I also want to do this ethically and help guide the right decision for my organization. Man, I just, this makes me want to go on another rant about nonprofit salaries. So this question surprised me. It really did. First of all, because I've never heard of this. When I worked for nonprofits, I used to speak to organizations all the time. I would go out and at no point did anyone ever try to give me money. <laughs> like many times I would get checks that went back to the organization, right? They give me money and say, this is for the, you know, we, you know, they make a big deal about it and they might write a big check on like the giant foam core check and say, we're giving $2,000 to the food bank and we'd pose for pictures. And I've tried to cash those giant things. The banks don't take them. You need a real check anyway. But the, I've never had anybody actually try to give me money to do it. Um, so, so I think that was a new question. I, I would, you know, from a, an ethics standpoint, I mean, I don't think that there's an ethical call in this one at all. If they're giving you money and it's just you, because they have the opportunity to say to you, this is for the organization, or this is for you. I think it's very clear if they're giving it to you and not the organization, it's your money. On the other hand, if it's, they're giving it to the organization and not you, that's really clear too. Right? So so then it's on you to decide, like, did I earn this? Is the nonprofit paying me for my time to do this? Am I on the clock? <laughs> did I, you know, if I'm salaried, like, does this count as part of my job duties? Well, then maybe I don't need extra money to do this. And then maybe you might want to just donate it back to the organization. I think that's that's sort of a personal, personal decision. Uh, what do you think, Stacey? I feel like one of the questions that has to be asked of the person receiving the honorarium is like, did I, did I get asked this because of my role with the organization because of, you know, or is it something that it may be tangentially related, but isn't directly tied to the role or to your organization? Because to me, I feel like there's, in my mind, there feels like a pretty strong line that if I'm being asked um, about something that maybe is expertise I even brought into an organization and I'm asked to speak at something and it's less about my organization or my role with the organization or our programs, and it's more about just my expertise, then I absolutely think I should be entitled to take it, you know, take that honorarium. And, you know, and candidly, depending on what the employee handbook says, but I also think like if I had to take off time from work, that would be my own vacation time or whatever, right? Like the time off policy. If I, you know, had travel expenses, those would be on me because I'd be getting the honorarium and it was separate. But like if it was something tied into my role with the organization, then I think it becomes a lot clearer that then that honorarium you know, should theoretically go out, go to the organization or to your point, Andy, like I receive it and then I donate it back. Um, I, I mean, and I think that's, that's just sort of a call that needs to be made. I don't think you can figure out all these situations or scenarios for like an employee handbook, but I do think, I do feel like there's a pretty clear line between when it would make sense for the organization to get the honorarium versus the individual. Uh, so I may be a little more black and white on this than you. 
<laughs> yeah. But the fact that you said employee handbook just like made my eyes roll a little bit. Like, because this is exactly the kind of thing that HR would try to insert into just a really prescriptive employee handbook rule about like, if you're having lunch with a donor, like, is the donor allowed to pay? How much can you eat? Um, if, if a vendor takes you to lunch, where are they allowed to take you? Like how much money can they spend on you if you go out to lunch with a vendor? Um, just all those kinds of just excruciating HR things that, that make people just hate HR. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything. The podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. You're listening to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast that covers everything you ever wanted to know about nonprofits and more. Today's intro was written and recorded by an AI who's definitely not coming for your nonprofit job. This week, co-hosts Andy Shurik and Stacy Wedding have some juicy topics for you. How to say yes to an honorarium without saying no to your nonprofit's values, how to ace your first capital campaign without breaking a sweat, and how Andy and Stacy got into the nonprofit world and what they wish they knew then. We'll also spill some tea and drop some gems from our own nonprofit adventures. Whether you're a newbie or a pro in the sector, we guarantee you'll learn something new and have some fun with us. So don't touch that dial. Stay tuned for Nonprofit Everything. Andy, I will be curious to know what you think about this and and your thoughts and feedback. Our organization is embarking on a capital campaign and some questions arose that none of our staff has the expertise to answer. And yes, we know there are capital campaign consultants, but we haven't heard great things about what they can deliver. And we've also heard how expensive they are. So we've decided to figure this out ourselves. What do donors expect when you ask them for a capital gift? Should we already have the building selected that we plan to renovate or the land selected we plan to build on? Do donors want to see the architectural renderings? If so, at what stage? We are hoping you can shed some light on Capital Campaign 101 or find a guest expert who may be able to give us some pointers before we get started. I like this question um, only because I sense danger <laughs> the, that that are so anybody that's like got lots of experience in this universe and because I know we have listeners that have done bunches of capital campaigns or or run capital campaigns for big organizations so feel free to call us on this one if I'm full of baloney <laughs> but but I think I need to especially because if this is the first time you've done a capital campaign and you're sort of looking at looking for the capital campaign playbook and trying to figure out, like, I know that there's a reason that people do it this way, right? You feel like there's this thing called capital campaign. I know we're supposed to do that for whatever reason. And so you just sort of blindly follow the playbook. And I would probably counsel against that. So if I can get back on my cash flow hobby horse once again, like the reason that we have these things called capital campaigns is because most boards feel super uncomfortable getting a mortgage to buy a building. And so what the board says is like, no, that's far too dangerous. I don't trust that you're able to raise the money to do this. Plus, if you've already got the building, the donors don't want to give you any money to pay for something you've already bought. So let's tell the donors 
We're going to have this thing in the future if they can help us build it. And maybe we can put their names on things because we love putting people's names on things and design this really complicated scenario to be able to build something at no risk to ourselves. And so what they want is all the money up front and they've got this complicated mechanism to do it that we call a capital campaign. And it really is based in that sort of cash flow issue, like that we just don't trust that you're capable of raising money unless you've got something to show for it. Like, oh, I'm raising money to buy a building. Well, that's very concrete, literally. So let's do that. Um, whereas if it's like, look, we already bought the building because we need to do the program and we just need you to fund our mission because we're awesome. Like that's harder for board members to grasp. So yeah, you could probably go down the typical capital campaign path, but I would probably say, look at what you want. Like, why do you need the building? Is it possible to talk to donors about what the end goal is? Um in, in such a way that you're not delaying program service delivery for five years while you get your act together and get an architect on board and have them design. Like I, I, I've seen like, so cultural institutions are notorious for this, right? They hire an architect and they're like, I need you to do this like amazing rendering. And it's way easier now than it used to be. Cause it used to be, they have to like draw it. And now it's like, they just like put a bunch of blocks in a computer program and it looks like this. And then, and then there's like those fake people, like the, the rendering where they have all the fake people wandering around outside the building and the really odd landscape, right? And they'll show you that as the pre-rendered, this is what the building's going to look like as if that's supposed to hype somebody up. And my, you know, and like my my history is uh, as a, a working for a consultant that specifically did museum planning where we're like, don't don't start with the shell of the building, start with the operations of the building and then figure out what shell makes the most sense for the building, right? Do that part last. What you want to do first is figure out like, what do you need to put in it? Like how many bathrooms do they need to be? Like, oh, I've got stories. I've got stories about some hilarious things that architects did. My favorite one, and I think they actually built this place, a museum gift shop, but the floor was sloped, like slanted. The, it wasn't a level floor, it was tilted because they were trying to respect the blah, blah, blah of the blah, 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 right? There was this really, really fancy architectural reason that they decided they needed to do it that way. So the practical result was that the floor of the gift shop was at an angle, which means that all of the fixtures where you put the stuff you're trying to sell had to be custom designed to handle the, the rake of that floor. And you couldn't move them because if you rotated them 15 degrees because you wanted a different flow, like all the stuff fell off the shelves, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it was hilarious. It was totally crazy. And like, and like, but it's a famous architect, so they could do whatever they want. And we're just the dumb museum consultants going, are you serious? Like, why are you doing this? It's the dumbest idea I've ever seen. Um, yeah, we got in trouble for that project. We called a board member. Don't ever call board members. <laughs> if you're a consultant, if it's not your role, don't do it. You're going to get fired. And we, I, we didn't get fired, but we got a, a talking to, um, it was a long time ago though. So nobody remembers, but me. Um, so so look at the, the long way of saying, look at what you want to get out of it. Think about the program reasons that you want to have a new building and try to sell those and see if there's a way that you can get to that without having to go through this, like, you know, let's get the capital campaign playbook and drop it on the table and try to follow somebody else's instructions. Because I'll tell you, you're just as smart as anybody else. And just because somebody else has decided to do it that way for years and years and years doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. Do you think, though, that there is some benefit in having some expertise, whether that's a capital campaign consultant or whether 
whether perhaps it's others who've gone through it to sort of understand how did they approach, you know, everything from the naming opportunities, what level was appropriate. I think those are some of the questions that people in this start to struggle with is like, okay, well, what, what financial amount is worth a named opportunity and how do we figure out what that financial amount is? Like, sure, we know we want these programs and we need a bigger space, but we need at least a dollar amount that we're sort of working towards. So there's got to be some pre-work, in my opinion, at least, like before you start having some of the making an ask. I mean, I guess it's, it, it, we're talking different things, having a conversation with a donor to sort of share that with them what you're, what you're thinking and, and see if there's buy-in, maybe that's a first step. And then as you start to move through the process, you're going to have to get more technical. Like, yeah, here's what the total project cost is estimated at. Here's how we figured that out. Here's what we could use your support on. Here's what level you can get a naming opportunity. And I think those are some of the things that I hear clients struggle with, like that are doing this on their own. Like they're like, it, how do we figure that stuff out? And I I don't know if that um, requires you know, quote, capital campaign expertise from a consultant um, or because I know there's some, you know, as with any consultants, there's some great capital campaign consultants and there's ones that sting and that's okay. You got to do your due diligence and find the right one and you've got to do what's right for your organization. But do you think it, do you think something like that could be valuable or, or you're sort of saying, hey, I think it's okay if they go it alone and here's maybe how they figure some of that out. Have you ever sat through any of those meetings? About like the, where they pass around the spreadsheet that says this room, the naming opportunities for this room are going to go for $25,000 and the naming opportunities for the, the handles on the toilets are $10,000. And that, I mean, it's, it's like, it's one of those things where like, once you see how the sausage is made, you're like, oh my God, how do these people do anything else? Like, this is impossible. It's the most man, random made up stuff I've ever seen. I've gone through it several times and it's totally made up. It's totally random. It's just people's opinions about what they think something's worth. There's no, I mean, seriously, if you're listening and you've got, you know, counterfactual information, you know, call me on it. But it's, it's one of those things where you're, you're hiring expertise, my opinion, hiring expertise so that you can outsource your brain to somebody else who's just going to make it up and you can believe them. It's, you have to start with the program itself. You have to start with what do I want to get out of this and then figure out what's the best way for us to achieve that goal? Is it raise all the money up front? If it's raise all the money up front, what's the best mechanism to do that? Because what happens if you just go full capital campaign 101 is that you've immediately fallen into the trap of we're not selling mission outcomes. We're selling building naming opportunities. We're selling perpetual philanthropic advertising. And I don't know that you're in the business of perpetual philanthropic advertising. That's a completely different that's a completely different skill set. So start with what you're good at. And then if you get to the point where you're like, yeah, I don't see these numbers aren't penciling out. We probably need somebody to help us figure out a different way to do it. Um, and it's the same thing we say about gala events, right? It's another mechanism. It's a mechanism that some people respond to. It's not the only mechanism. So don't just assume that it's going to solve all your problems. So a capital campaign is the exact same way. It is one way to raise money to expand your operations. It's not the only way. And it's, it's up to smart people thinking about it to figure out what the best way is. Mm -hmm. 
I'm a longtime listener, and I've always wondered if you could share a little bit about your background. How did you end up working in the nonprofit sector? I know you love these kinds of questions, Andy, and thank you to whomever wrote this question because I do dig these kinds of questions. So uh, I got my start at a really young age that led me to the path of actually working at a nonprofit. And so I promise I'm not going to take you through my whole life, but I got my start volunteering and fundraising when I was five years old. And it was because my mom was an executive director for what was then called the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, today is known as JDRF. And she got involved because I was diagnosed with type one insulin-dependent diabetes at the age of two. And so it changed our whole family's trajectory. And we were all sort of on this mission to find this cure for this disease that was pain in the butt. And so as an only child, I got to do all the stuff, whether I wanted to or not, to help my mom, right? I'd help set up for walkathons. I would go to their Monopoly tournament gala and be the poster child and get up on stage and say a few words and, you know, do the sad face when the the TV crews came to take my picture of taking an insulin shot. Like I, I had it down, right? But anyway, and and I did all that and I really ended up loving it, like more than I ever could have. And and what I loved the most was going to a hospital and visiting newly diagnosed diabetics and their families and just telling them it was going to be okay. That like, look at me. Um, that obviously didn't happen quite at the age of five. That probably happened closer to 10 or 11. But that was my journey, right, is, is of getting involved in, in the sector. And then as time went on and I graduated college, I went and worked in corporate America, both uh, at a larger company, uh, which is uh, now NV Energy at the time was Nevada Power Company, and worked there for a couple of years and in their corporate communications department, and then worked in a PR after that, went to a small PR firm and worked on PR. And one of the things that I kept striving for and yearning for in both of those positions was this connection to the community, to nonprofits. And so I always got assigned, right, the accounts for the jobs that had to do with anything to do with kind of employee engagement, creating corporate social responsibility plans for clients, helping nonprofits, nonprofit clients when I was at the PR firm craft and share their story. So that was where I started to like pull in some of those nonprofit roots and after doing that for a while, I was just like, this is just still not fulfilling enough. So I went and worked and moved to the Nevada Community Foundation. And I started there. I think I've shared the story before, but I think it bears repeating. Andy, you'll still probably laugh at it, right? I first day on the job, I had a desk with like, I was sitting across from my boss at the desk and she took out like this canister of pens and pencils and lined them across the desk. And she said, Stacy, that half of the desk is yours and this half is mine. And I totally thought she was joking. I'm like, no. And I started laughing <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm serious. I'm like what, right? What the heck have I gotten myself into? Go back to Kush PR accounts, right? So anyway, and then she's like, we're going to share a computer too. A total, like anyone who's been in nonprofit or smaller nonprofits knows like the struggle is real when it's sort of just getting started. And so um, anyways, other than going home that night and crying myself to sleep about what mistake <laughs> did I make, I actually ended up, that was 
that was such a gift because I, I stuck it out and I ended up loving it. I loved working at the community foundation. I loved connecting donors with nonprofits and doing all that stuff. And I also wore all the hats, right? Like, so we were a nonprofit ourselves. So while we did grant making, we also had to do you know, different types of fundraising than a typical nonprofits, but we did fundraising and plan giving with donors and trying to help them think about their charitable dreams and wishes. And, and the one thing that I kept thinking about during all that was like, gosh, people need so many people are well-intentioned, but they need tools and training and like to understand better, like how to make the impact they're trying to make both on the donor side and on the nonprofit side. So it is truly that why and sort of that passion that drove me eventually, I don't know, six and a half years later after working there and kind of working my way up and helping grow the organization, I, I said, hey, I'm going to launch my own consulting business. Never knew uh, how much work and how hard it would be. And and now I still get to work with a lot of nonprofits and a handful of philanthropists helping helping them you know, be as effective as they can. And I just wouldn't want it any other way. So now that I've done that, I've hopefully bought you enough time, Andy, to to share a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, I like that. So Stacy, yours kind of, to me, sounded like, like more of a superhero origin story, right? So you had this like precipitating event at a very young age, and it sort of pushed you on this trajectory of doing what you do now, right? And learning all these things kind of you know, as just part of your personality, as you go, you just absorbed all this stuff and said, I like this. I'm going to continue to do this. Right. I think that's great. Like mine is the opposite. Mine is, <laughs> mine is, they would never make a superhero movie about my sort of nonprofit origin story because it is, it does not make any sense. So I had, we'll go all the way back to elementary school. I had this amazing, um, chorus teacher named Mrs. Sanborn. She was like the greatest. She was the like the single best teacher I've ever had. And she taught music in elementary school, which was a luxury back then um, in the public schools where I grew up, like there you, you're lucky if you got a music teacher. So we got a music teacher and she was, um, she was really, really great and sort of propelled me into um, doing lots of sort of performing arts things. I enjoyed doing all kinds of performing arts stuff all through high school. I did that. Went to college. I actually have a BFA in theater and television performance um, cause that's what I was going to do. I loved being on stage. I loved creating sort of performing arts, like things, whether it was musicals or plays or all that kind of stuff. Realized like about three quarters of the way through college that I also did not have the personality to be an actor or a performing artist. Like th that was just not part of my makeup. I'm not good at selling myself. I'm not good at going to auditions and convincing people that they want to put me in their things, right? That just, I just couldn't do it. It was really, really hard for me. And I was just bad at it. Um, but didn't want to give up sort of that great feeling I got with creating, like getting a group of people together and creating something that other people can appreciate. Um, especially something as complicated as a musical, like putting that together is a lot of work. There's a lot of moving parts. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of people working together. Um, I didn't want to give that up. And so um, after, after I struggled at being terrible at what I wanted to be when I grew up for several years, I finally went back and got a, a master's degree. So, um, and the master's degree was in nonprofit management. It was at Southern Methodist university in Dallas, Texas. It's the arts administration program. It's an MBA from the Cox school of business, as well as an MA 
in arts administration, nonprofit administration. So you get to learn kind of the business side of running an arts organization. Um, so I went, did that, which was kind of like me sort of deciding to refocus, like, okay, if I'm going to participate in this universe, I need to be useful and I can, I can use a spreadsheet. I can program computers. I could do nerd stuff. Um, I'll just do that instead. Um, so got this degree and then ended up working for a couple of performing arts organizations, um, and then ended up at a consulting organization where we did, we did big plans for museums. So if you had a museum and it was sort of outgrowing its space and you needed to build a new museum and you needed to talk to all the stakeholders to see what the new museum was going to be like, how much space do you need for conservation? How much space do you need for the decorative arts collection? How much space do you need for the works on paper collection? All that kind of specific stuff. Um, we would sort of help talk to everybody and figure out so that we could communicate with architects, usually famous architects that are more interested in how buildings look than they are interested in how buildings function. So did that for several years and then got hired away to um, actually start up a museum myself, like me and a team got to start up a brand new museum and cultural arts institution, which is the Las Vegas Springs Preserve, which if you haven't been there is pretty cool. Um, so did that for a while and then the, did that for a while and then ended up uh, over at Three Square, the food bank in Las Vegas, doing finance stuff for Three Square as the CFO there for quite a while. Um, and realized what I really enjoyed the most um, out of all of those experiences was the the starting up of things. Like once things are steady state, this is just my personality. Once things are steady state and they're running and it works well and, and it's just kind of you're going to do what you did again last year, um, I tend to lose interest really, really fast. I like the startup and design phase. So left left three square to start my own company that helps other people start up and design things. Um, for the most part, it's corporate social responsibility programs for big corporations, things like that. Um, and then I still do, I still help out with food banks all over the country because once you're in the food bank world, you actually don't ever get to leave the food bank world because it's such a very specific set of skills. Like there's only so many of us that, that did finance for a food bank and everybody needs help with that all the time. So I do an awful lot of that too. Um, so, so unlike Stacy's origin story, which was <laughs> like, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. Cause I feel really passionate. I was just like, like, I feel like a pinball in a pinball machine sometimes just kind of bouncing from, from flipper to bumper to flipper to bumper. And then here I am talking to people on the internet about nonprofit things with my friend Stacy, which I'm happy with that. <laughs> well, I love, I love your story, Andy, because it really shows, I mean, first of all, talk about your right brain and left brain, both working, I mean, between performing arts and then, you know, MBA and finance and yeah, all of the stuff, startup, like it's what makes you, I know you hate this kind of stuff. So I'm going to just say it's what makes you such a badass. Like, I mean, because you, and you, you have this approach from all these different experiences that I think lends itself really well to the nonprofit sector. So anyway, there's my, um, there's my plug of Andy because he'll never do it for himself. And he's like frowning at me now. <laughs> no, I was going to say there's a, there's actually a word in French, uh, flaneur is the name of someone who does what I do, which is, um, everything badly. <laughs> oh, whatever. 
I don't believe that for a minute. Anyway, I think, yeah, I think it's kind of fun looking at our journeys. And I think probably other people have have similar stories um, of some, how they've fallen into this work and some who maybe just knew because of some, whether it was inspirational or traumatic event or whatever. Uh, I feel, I feel fortunate. And, you know, one of the biggest learnings I I think about when our president and CEO at the time had resigned six months into my tenure, when I was still trying to figure out what exactly community foundation was and, and the board was like, Hey, want to be the interim for the next six months. I just remember going, holy crap, what have I got myself into? But I share that because I hope those of you listening, when those opportunities present themselves, run for them, like run toward them, not away from them. Because for me, that was life-changing. That experience was life-changing. And I, I don't know if I'd be doing and I what I'm doing today without it. I am grateful for it. I had a lot of uh, angst and worry and tears about it from time to time during it, but it was such a learning. So it's kind of cool to be a part of growing, creating, and, and with yourself in the process as well, not just the organization. So anyway, thank you for the person who asked us that question. Congratulations, you made it to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, the best way to support the podcast is to share it with people um, or send us questions. That's a good way to support us too, because then we've got more things to talk about that you want to hear. So we really appreciate that. Um, Stacy, I have a question for you. What, what are you reading right now? You always seem to be reading interesting things. Oh, I'm not sure this is interesting, but it is if I am reading Essentialism. And this book is about stripping it all back to the bare basics and saying more no's than yeses, which is an ongoing uh, life journey for me. So I am being reminded, and it's actually a really cool book so far. I'm about halfway through, got some really good nuggets. How about you? Oh, um, I, I'm, I'm the worst kind of reader because I will start like 10 books and then just finish them all at random. So I don't know, maybe I try to train my brain to keep lots of thoughts. But um, right now on my desk is Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy, which I'm reading for the first time ever because I found it and decided I wanted to read it. Um, and so far, it's interesting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so thanks for listening to the podcast and uh, getting some book recommendations from us. Why not?